Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Pain Rebel podcast brought to you by StraightShotHealth.com. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And my guest today is Dr. Andy Chambers. Dr. Chambers is the director of the addiction psychiatry program at Indiana University. Uh, we've had some discussions in the past and we've had some discussions offline. He brings a very unique prescri- um, a, a very unique kind of vision when it comes to discussing these issues, particularly with addiction and pain, uh, some of the overlays there, the medication issues that we're coming out to. Um, and what I wanted to talk to Dr. Chambers about today for you guys in the audience is there's this complex interplay when we're looking at things with pain and specifically with persistent pain and things like dependence and addiction, uh, what that means. And unfortunately, it becomes very difficult to have some of these conversations because once we hear the word addiction, everybody's warning signs start going up. Um, I would like in this conversation that we can kind of challenge those a little bit because, because as we understand addiction, hopefully we have some empathy towards addiction and also understand it as much more common than we think and in many ways all of us are addicted to someone something so we'll uh, get into it a little bit when you're here dr chambers glad to have you on the program i'm glad to be here and it's always great to uh, have these uh um kinds of explorations with you appreciate everything you're doing with this series um and and especially in this topic area so, so I was glad to be here, Kevin. Thanks well, thank, a lot for you know, thank, me on. <laughs> as I said, we've had some great discussions offline, and, and yeah. Um, but what I what I would love to for you to kind of to uh, to start off with is what do you feel? Well, can you kind of describe addiction for us as your understanding as an expert on addiction, and then can you kind of bring into it what are your common what are your most common frustrations that you see when you hear this topic being discussed out in the media and out in the world? Sure. Well, um, you know, I think I think it's uh, it's a good idea when you think about what addiction actually is to try to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes when you have a very, you know, sort of simple, clear understanding of what the core of this disease is, then it kind of helps you simplify all the other complexities on top of that. You know, when you look in the DSM uh, manual, the psychiatric manual, that provides, you know, a fairly elaborate, you know, multi-criteria uh, definition of a substance use disorder, which is essentially synonymous with addiction. And, you know, there's a lot of words, depending on which one you're talking about, you know, nine to 11 different criteria. So, you know, sometimes you can get lost in, in all those words and all those criteria. And I think I, I try to think of addiction as, a, as really boiling it down to a much more simple um, understanding uh, of a disease process. So the first thing, you know, to, to recognize is that it is a disease. It is a disease of the brain, just as, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease are diseases of the brain. Um, it is a neuropsychiatric process, just like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are. Um, it is a disease of, you know, neural tissue, um, just like other diseases of the body uh, involve, um, uh, problems in, in other organs and other tissues. So it, you know, it's definitely has a physical substrate and it's a progressive disease. People don't get it like turning on a light switch is actually something that, um, starts on a very small scale, but at, over time uh, grows and grows. And, uh, you know, again, the analogy of that is the way Alzheimer's works or happens, the way Parkinson's works. So, again, a progressive disease of the brain that involves um, compulsive drug-seeking and drug-taking despite adverse consequences. So that really is what it is in the most simple, bold down way. Again, a progressive disease of the brain that involves compulsive drug seeking and drug use despite adverse consequences. Now, one of the you know keys in that, that really fundamental understanding is the word compulsive. And what's important about that word um, 
it, as it relates to addiction especially, is that it's not voluntary. And again, I go back to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. You know, in both of those cases, you have a progressive abnormality of neural function that is not a choice of the individual. Um, a person with progressive Alzheimer's disease is not making a choice to lose their memory. And similarly, a person with Parkinson's disease is not making a choice to uh, have tremors or find it harder and harder to walk across the room. And so similarly with, with addiction, the individual is suffering a worsening of a compulsive set of behaviors focused on using and acquiring the drug. And part of that compulsion and lack of voluntariness to that behavior is absolutely attached to the fact that it proceeds despite adverse consequences. Um, you know, and, and, and so another way to look at it, um, you know, to look at this same definition is that, you know, it's really a disease of the brain that controls free will and healthy um, motivation and, and to some extent decision making. So someone suffering with addiction, it's not that they've lost all their free will and healthy, healthy motivation. It's just that um, with the disease, there has been the introduction of a pathological motivation. And, and you know what you see when you take care of people with addiction is that they, they, they very much feel split. Um, they know they need to get rid of the addiction. They know it's causing harm, but that motivation that's pathological is in there, and they, cannot, they do not have voluntary control over the motivations of drug seeking and drug use. So, you know, th this, this really lends, this way to understand addiction, I think, um, you know, opens the door up both to understanding the neurobiology of the disease, but also understanding what we need to do to treat it and to help us get our head wrapped around the fact that criminalizing the disease um, it is not a humane or even effective approach. In fact, you know, many, in many respects, it's a, it's a absolutely harmful, you know, approach. So uh, there's so much I can unpack there, um, but just kind of to, to add on yeah. to that little tail sentence, though, when you're talking about cr criminalizing, often uh, we can also add judgmentalizing, if that is even a word. I, you know, yes. No one would go and say, you know what, you have Alzheimer's, you should have made better choices. <laughs> right, right. No, nobody would say you have Parkinson's disease. Why don't you just uh, walk? Try to try to walk. Be a stronger walker. Um, yeah, right, right, exactly. Now, th yeah. there's a couple of things I do want to kind of clarify, though. Yeah. When we talk about progression, and and I I like the analogy of comparison to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but what I do get concerned about, yeah, when we use words about progressive, is um, that could give the impression that that this. That, it, that there's really nothing you can do to interrupt or halt or even recover in some yeah. ways. And uh, so when, when I, I just, when I hear the word progressive, I, could we, well, I would say that there's probably some people with addiction that have recovered from it and they're not doomed to progress to get worse over time. Am I? Yes. Okay. So I, so I, I, would, to I would totally agree with that. In okay. fact, you know, I, I, with the way I'm using progressive here, it, it does not preclude reversible. Yeah. You know, so this is, you, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head. This is a, this is a really important way where the analogy between Parkinson's disease and, and Alzheimer's and addiction falls short. This is such an important point that unlike Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, we can actually remit the disease of addiction, reverse and remit it. So what what a lot of what a lot um, a lot of people, you know, I think because of the stigma against addiction, there still are a lot of people in and out of the medical community that kind of view addiction as a, you know, a a, a permanent, irreversible, unhealth un 
treatable um, disease. And, and the reality is, is that it's, you can actually treat it far more effectively, given the right circumstances, than you can Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. So um, I would definitely agree with you. It is progressive, but unlike the other two, it's definitely reversible and remittable. In fact, this is where I would say that understanding what addiction is in terms of treatment gets closer to cancer than it is Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. You know, with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, you can certainly reduce the severity of the symptoms and slow down the progression with treatment, but you can't, um, you know, if, if you genuinely have those illnesses, you can't eventually, uh, you, you know, that there will be, eventually there will be a full progression that, and you can't, you can't stop that process. Whereas with addiction, um, much more like cancer, you know, we can uh, use treatments against a tumor somewhere in the body and, you know, knock out that tumor, get rid of that tumor mass, and, and which we call remitting the disease. And I think that that analogy with cancer in terms of treatment is, is quite adept, too, because, um, you know, what we, what we know, though, you know, is that just like with cancer, different individuals have different uh, biological risk factors for cancers. Mm-hmm. And similarly, there is, uh, you know, quite large variation between individuals in each of, a, each of our own risks, risk profiles, you know, for addiction. And so even when an individual, you know, even when we can remit addiction in a person, just like, you know, oncologists might put a cancer into remission, you know, there still is a chance for a recurrence, mm-hmm. you know, in cancer. And um, that, you know, that can also happen um, w- with addictionology. But again, in both cases, both with cancer and, um, you know, addictionology, there is huge variation. You know, cures are absolutely possible. Um, and, but also there, there's the ability to, you know, greatly improve the clinical picture Sometimes without getting a hundred percent cure, but maybe you you um, greatly improve someone's life and you you give them a normal normal lifespan and you greatly reduce the severity of the illness. And again, this is more like oncology than it would be um, you know neurological disease like like Parkinson's. Yeah, and and to further expand on that because there's a you know a number of different points that I think we've kind of touched on is you know each everybody has. We all have vulnerabilities. As as yeah. a human being, you have a vulnerability, and yeah. we have to look at. Um, you know, I was asking people. Just genetics is the hot topic right now. I think it gets a little bit overblown, but yeah. definitely our genes do play a role. Epigenetics, yep. which is lifestyle and behavioral choices upon our genetic code, probably have a larger role. But people may have a susceptibility based on you know who you were, who you are, who your parents were, where you grew up. Um, to certain things. And so maybe some people have a greater risk of cancer. Some people may have greater risk of Alzheimer's. Some people have a greater risk of addiction. Um, you know, people like me, if you look into my family history, I have a greater risk of cardiovascular disease. That's, it is, yeah. you know, if you kind of look at it, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily doomed to have this occur. Uh, but we, we should be, you know, at least cognizant that there's a possibility there. And in the same yeah. way that, you know, that this, this progressive part is really, what are you going to do? You know, if you do, I, I guess when I hear the word progressive, in addition to, I'm wanting to make sure people to understand that it's not an inevitability to it. We can halt it, remit it, like you said. In yeah. the same way, is it, it takes some, there takes some active-based approaches. If you're not going to do anything, then the likelihood of it continuing is is pretty, pretty, pretty high. Yeah. And then the yeah. other part with this, just to, to kind of add in another disease model, but I think this um, would be obesity. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and 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 I know in 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 your definition, you specifically said about uh, compulsive drug seeking, but isn't obesity in some ways can also be considered an addiction? Yeah, absolutely. A behavioral addiction okay. is what we call a lot. Of, a lot of people call this whole category, you know, of compulsive behaviors that produce adverse consequences. Um, you know, that don't involve necessarily a chemical. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, in, with regard to eating, 
Um, there are lots of people who uh, feel that sexual behavior, you know, compulsive sex, sex addiction uh, is a term that's been considered, uh, you know, gam pathological gambling, um, you know, some other compulsive stuff like uh, uh, shop, compulsive shoplifting, uh, otherwise known as kleptomania, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. Absolutely. So, so it's pretty. I mean, it's it's pervasive. We we just have it. I think we have this idea that an addict is someone you know shooting up in a dark alley, and for whatever reason, and, and please anybody listen to this. I, this is this, I'm just trying to put out an impression there. I do not believe this, but that they, you know, they're choosing to do this, or they're a junk. I hate you know they're a junkie and they don't want to get better, which I think is just absurd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we and, and and it's weird because here we are. We're you know we just threw out obesity, which we know has you know a genetic and compulsion. And there's um, again there's similarities there with what we would call with drug addiction. Use, yeah. Compulsive gambling again destroys yeah. lives. Uh, we we look at these other these these maybe well I guess gambling. There's some people that would stigmatize that, but. It, we, if we under again, we were understanding this and approaching it from empathy. There is a each, I, I like to think each of us has like this pro this predisposition to possible addiction in one way. Some of us it may be food. Some of us may be sex. Some of us it may be gambling. Some of us may be uh, chemical substances. And um, rather than again trying to stigmatize it, we if we kind of recognize that 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 vulnerability is there, and how it is expressed in different individuals really depends on you know a lot of different factors but they're very very similar i would say there's more similar with obesity and chemical dependency than there is with you know it's just so so frustrating to me yeah yeah <laughs> now the, the last word to kind of unpack with would be adverse consequences mm -hmm. because that i you know you look in the dsm4 or actually dsm5 now and when we use these words and it, it um how do we define that? Because there's some people that there's a matter of perspective where, where some people say, well, I'm doing this because I choose to. But an outside invest outsider looking, it would say, well, there seems to be some pretty heavy adverse consequences with this. So how, how would you kind of define adverse con adverse con uh, consequences for an individual? Like where would you say, you know, what are the kind of the worry signs that you're looking at? Absolutely. Well, you know, um, this is this is pretty key. I'm glad we have the time to talk about it because, first of all, it really is the case that if you cannot define, if you can't characterize or identify or define adverse consequences um, to drug taking behavior, then you don't have addiction. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you really don't. And and so that's really important. Um, in fact, the severity, you know, the severity of the addiction. Um, you know, it, it, in, in many ways is proportional to the accumulation or scope of adverse consequences that's accompanying the syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, I, I mean, if someone, you know, has a single cigarette, for example, um, you know, there, there is some, some non-zero adverse consequences, right, to even smoking a, sing, a single cigarette, but, you know, that, that is so slight that it's hard to argue that they've suddenly gotten an addiction to the nicotine right mm -hmm. there on the spot, you know? Um, and sing, so, single exposure right. kind of a thing, like if you're in yeah, high school we, and yeah. you smoke so a people, cigarette. So, so what that means is that people experiment with legal and illegal drugs all the time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's not addiction. It's really not. You cannot, you can't diagnose it. So a lot of people also have that misunderstanding. I mean, if someone smokes a joint in a state where it's a, uh, illegal and they do it one time that really is not an addiction or even a substance use disorder arguably i mean i guess it poses the risk of being arrested but you know a single use that that produces no adverse consequences you really cannot diagnose mm -hmm. you know and so so on the other hand um when you are trying to when, when you are looking for this diagnosis in a person um it really is, um, you know, the, the, the domains of adverse consequences due to the substance use can be any domain. Basically, any domain of human life or function um, 
it is is up for grabs when it when you talk about the consequences of 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 addiction and so that includes you know damage to the body in other words secondary diseases and that may occur through you know the toxicity of the drug itself it may it may happen through accidents that happen say when you're intoxicated um, it could include your finances it can include your legal status it could include uh, sacrifices to your education, to your relationship, to your occupation. Ba basically, I can't even think, I can't think of a domain of human functioning that for which there aren't consequences. And I think that that is also a lead-in to beginning a conversation to realize that, oh my goodness, addictions are incredibly powerful sources of public health morbidity and mortality because they bait addictions when they're really going basically cause so much secondary damage almost unlike any other disease process you know um, how much damage can be secondary you know to in all those domains I'm talking about and why, why it is not only such a core public health crisis that we're not dealing with correctly still, but also a social, you know, a social crisis and to some extent even an economic crisis in our country. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think one of the very first conversations that we had, ooh, this was a number of years ago, um, yeah. was how you made the comment, because at the time I was, you know, I'm still a believer, you know, diseases of lifestyle and behavior are the are diseases, of, uh, are chronic diseases, which is the major place where we're spending our, our money in the healthcare system, like 70% yeah. of every healthcare dollar. But what you had said was really the the key contributor to if, if you're looking at long-term mor morbidity, mortality, and basically cost of healthcare system are diseases of addiction. And... Um, and I remember thinking at the time when you said, it, I was like, what? And then I started going back through it because you, you, you went, well, look at smoking, you know, and look, what is the long-term sequelae with, with smoking cigarettes? It's, it's, you got pulmonary problems or lung problems. You got heart problems. You've got, uh, you've got cancer problems. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it, it, and like, and I started going through it. I'm like looking at all these diseases yeah. and looking at all these chronic diseases. And it is very difficult to tease out up or to, uh, if you, if you kind of look at, at, at addiction in relation to all these chronic diseases, there there's a component there that I think yeah. is completely underappreciated. Um, yeah. And I, again, I think it comes to this idea is we can't even start talking about addiction with things because people just go crazy saying you're judging me. And and granted, maybe there's a reason for it because our society is so freaking judgmental about this stuff. Rather yeah, than sure. let's, let's look at the facts, let's try yeah. to do what's best for people and start you know, start having honest discussions. So. Absolutely. And to, to that point, you know, I think that I, I'm very aware that, you know, when I, when I state that kind of epidemiological reality, you know, that when you, when you, when you bunch all these addictions up next to each other, you know, even each one of them separately, you take nicotine separate from alcohol and take that separate from opiate opioids you know, then you put them all together, it's just clear, you know, that the diseases involving these addictions is, is you know, a, 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 a core cause of such a wide depth and scope of, of illness and death. So when I say that to people or audiences, I'm very aware that in some people's minds, it could reinforce their idea. Well, then, by good, by golly, you need to criminalize it. <laughs> you see, yeah. it almost gives them more ammunition to say, "Well, if it's such a horrible scourge, then we need to make sure it's not legal, and we need to uh, put people in prison for it." Yeah, because you're right, and that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually saying if it's a medical problem that causes more medical problems, then we need to treat it as a medical yeah. problem. <laughs> well, you, you know, that's just another killer thing for me is you, if you start looking at this stuff um, yeah. it, it, beyond, I mean, I, just public health. And this actually has to do with pain and addiction and everything yeah. else. But uh, you, you look at you look at our prison system and um, actually this is a good place to kind of segue into mental health issues and, and yeah. addiction and things because – in our prisons, it's I think the last time I look at the stats, about forty nine percent of 
people in federal penitentiaries have either uh, medical health issues and or substance abuse or both. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we criminalize the stuff and, and we're going from this, again, this judgmental, judgmental uh, uh, punishment model. And it, yeah. it, it's, are there some people that, that, yeah, probably need some punishment and sub- judgmental, but I would say that they're probably the minority. And we're more looking at this, again, this, this overarching theme of, of neurobiology that is significantly influenced by socioeconomics and environment, because that's how your, your biology changes based on who you're with and, 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 and who, who you grew up with and your parenting and everything's like that. And it's this, the solution that we are doing where we, we were criminalizing, just like you said, is, is not, not working. No. <laughs> you know, costs are pretty absurd. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. So totally agree. So let's let's kind of move into that. When you're when you're looking at um, what are the overlays that you're seeing when in in your particular clinic? I know you you're working with fellows, so you're getting some highly complex cases. Um, and and maybe this is a point where we can start talking about this pain addiction conundrum, where we start over overlying. How, what you know? Why is it that we tend to see addiction in pain? And or why does it that we tend to see addiction and say depression and anxiety, or we tend to see addiction, anxiety, depression, and pain in um, you know kind of overlapping this Venn diagram where you have all this stuff and can kind of overlap in the same individual. Right. So um, you know, I think I think there are several dynamics in play, you know, and they're kind of they're kind of inter interwoven strands and they kind of the, the each of these dynamics ha, have sort of bi-directional yeah. causal things going on mm-hmm. right and um, you know I think I think at, fir- at first of all you know we've kind of long known that pain is not merely a peripheral disease a disease uh, you know a, a disease or medical condition of the peripheral nerves or you know, the tissues that those nerves, um, supply. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, um, pain is a, is also, especially chronic forms of it, um, is a representation of neural signaling very much that's in the, in the upper parts of the brain. Um, the, the same parts of the brain that uh, govern, um, you know, uh, cognition, emotion, memory, um, and even uh, conscious levels of consciousness or even motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and so and reward. Um, yeah, I think that a rule of thumb is is that the more chronic the pain is, the balance of um, you know and I, I know that you know I know that that a lot of your work is informed from this perspective that that the more chronic the pain is the more the balance of whatever you know of the disease process of that you know abnormal signaling is occurring more and more in the upper parts of the brain rather than the periphery rather than the peripheral nerves and rather than you know the organs that those nerves supply in the body and so uh, I think that's one major dynamic. And so, so what I'm kind of what I'm saying is that there is a great deal of phenomenological as well as biological overlap uh, between what happens in di- different forms of psychiatric illness and what's happening in the context, you know, of chronic pain. And there are just so many lines of evidence that are very solid um, to support that. Including the fact that, you know, many of our effective medications for chronic pain syndromes actually are psychiatric drugs. That's that's a very uh, plain uh, line of evidence um, that there's a connection there. And so, um, you know, the, the second issue um, that I think is um, in play is that while opioids are quite effective for acute traumatic pain, um, and that, that's well established, uh, that is a totally legitimate and very old, 
you know, not a new but an old application of opioids. I, I'm talking about for acute serious injuries. So you know, broken. Can I interrupt you right there just for a second? Yeah. Um, and so I would I would specify is is when and this will be beyond some of the the audience here. But if we have any medical professionals, what, what we're when you're looking at trauma, what we're talking about is when there is a primary nociceptive component. When there is when you like so if you have a broken leg, tissue damage, et cetera, and we know there is a primary nociceptive. This is tissue based. No receptors firing. Those are not pain fibers, not pain receptors. They're no susceptors. But in those scenarios, um, that's when I think we're, 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 I just wanted to kind of clarify that first. Because some, some medical people are not going to, again, having worked with other medical people, they may not be able to make that distinguishing characteristic. Yeah. Is, yeah. And, and in those scenarios, even, it not, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have opioids. And I, I just kind of, because oh. there's, you know, the Beecher, uh, Colonel Beecher, who was, a, who was a physician in World War II, he's got one of the earliest publications on it where he was going through, these are patients with severe war injuries. We're talking about intra-abdominal trauma, com, you know, compound fractures, long bones, um, uh, head trauma. And it was interesting is based on the severity of the wounds that, we were, they, that he was seeing in, these, in this theater of war, only yeah. a quarter of the individuals were reporting pain. Yeah, uh, that was that he that you know that him and the the other physicians and and healthcare providers in that environment were like, whoa, this yeah. sort of makes sense. Other people, he was he would I mean that paper, which is fascinating to read. There's yeah. people with really complex injuries, and they it, and uh, there was a chunk of them that had no opioids at all. So, uh, yeah. I just kind of I kind of want to throw that out there. Yeah, that, um, those are those are I totally agree with those qualifiers. Thank you for adding that. Absolutely. But I think what you were, but I, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, is what you're basically saying is in, when we have this large degree of primary nociceptive input, that specific type of nerve information, then opioids do make sense then. And yeah, that is most definitely have a role. Yeah, most, but, and mostly that occurs in what we would call an acute scenario. We don't typically yeah. see that in the chronic scenario. Exactly. And so, um, you know, so the problem we get into is where the use of the opioids continues, you know, beyond um, the, the acute time window. And when it gets into where the inciting injury is uh, well, on way, well on its way to healing, um, and, and this is problematic, uh, you know, I'd say for several reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, you know, at you know, people forget we, we already have our own built-in opioid system. You know, the endogenous opioid system is what our brains automatically have that we're all born with. Um, and the, that system literally uses uh, different variations of opioids that get manufactured in our brains that work on the same receptors to help us regulate uh, all these, uh, you know, processes of sensation and other things and so um when you when you are pouring exogenous opioids into someone chronically when i mean you know prescribing or you know taking or prescribing and taking pharmaceutical opioids you're you're actually now over time beginning to suppress the activity of the natural endogenous opioid system mm -hmm. and so with that suppression um, you know, there's a there's a response that's inside the brain that turns down the internal opioid thermostat, if you will, so that suddenly, if there's a point where the external opioids, the prescribed opioids, are cut off, well, the internal thermostat, opioid thermostat, is turned down so low because it had been expecting those opiates that basically the person suddenly experiences you know, severe discomfort and even pain um, that could reflect what was originally part of the injury but is no longer relevant. In other words, the opiates themselves now become a perpetuator of the pain syndrome. And that is a serious problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, right. and, and I think that's underappreciated, and, yeah. and, and particularly in the medical community, is this understanding that every every pharmaceutical agent that we use works on a receptor that of a of a naturally occurring substance in your body. Yes. And we don't, and we and we tend to not think about this when it comes to opioids, but look at steroid use. 
So if someone has a condition where they're getting, um, you know, maybe they have a, 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 a autoimmune condition or something where they're giving them, we're giving them extra steroid. We are complete. Well, I should say most of us are aware that when you give someone exogenous steroid, oral steroids or IV steroids or whatever, we're going to suppress the body's ability to produce steroids. There can be some extraordinarily bad things that can happen with that, both with, um, with you know, particularly if you've been on steroids for a long period of time and you take them off, people will go into an adrenal crisis. Yeah. And, um, you know, but these, but the, the other part with, with opioids that I think is kind of interesting and is, um, again, what we've touched on, you know, these are so important to every, the, this, this natural opioid system that we have is so important for our day-to-day -day existence. And it, it's pretty much like ubiquitous throughout the brain. But yeah. when you start looking at that, that reward and motivation, um, you know, I, 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 I find it really interesting because you see with, with excessive opioid that there is a change in those motivation systems. And yeah. we, you know, like, uh, some of the papers I've read where they're talking about where people, you know, initially you may have been where that opioid system may have worked because it makes you, helps you feel better. But kind of when you've been on this stuff for a long period of time and we become more insensitive and you have these higher basal levels and we, you know, we stop doing this tonic phasic thing in the middle of the brain but it starts people start taking them so that they don't feel bad and i think yeah. that distinguishing characteristic is extraordinarily important because people would also say you know would say well i don't take my opioids because i get high yeah you know and and uh, yeah but that no longer i'm taking them so that i don't feel bad that's sort of telling us that something's not right in the brain anymore you know yeah exactly and it and it also because of that same component, right, of, of opioid addiction, you know, that, that sort of tolerance and withdrawal syndrome that's a part, you know, a, a really important part of having opioid addiction. Well, and we, and we can call that dependence, right? Because if yeah. you can have that without, ad, without adverse consequences per yeah. se. Yeah, you can. You can. You definitely can, and there's lots of other, you know, as you pointed out with uh, corticosteroids or insulin, there are other, all, there are other conditions where when you don't have your medicine, so to speak, you, you know, really get into trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, you're dependent, like someone who has diabetes type 1 is dependent on their insulin. Um, so there's something like that, but in this case, um, I think what's problematic is that you know, the way opioid addiction involves this kind of dependence and a dependence that specifically causes the person to feel pain when they're in opiate withdrawal, mm -hmm. right? The sickness and pain when they're in opiate withdrawal, then it causes the person to basically have a pain syndrome, right? Yeah. I mean, because they perceive it, and so do doctors, they perceive this... Um, you know, this opiate withdrawal that involves pain as not necessarily an addiction, but just more evidence that they have a chronic pain syndrome. Yes. So, so with many of these patients, right, who may have, may have a chronic pain syndrome even with or without opiate addiction, it certainly can be expected that the opiate addiction itself will compound and worsen actually compound and worse than the chronic pain syndrome um, that may be underneath there. And that that is something that uh, I think doctors pretty globally forgot about um, that gave rise to the opioid epidemic. Yeah, and it, and it does make it, when, you're, when you have somebody who's been on high-dose opioids for a long period of time, yeah. um, when, when people, you know, because I could hear someone saying this, well, that just means that, that you should keep people on high-dose opioids for the rest of your life. And I, I am not saying that. I, what, yeah. And I think what we're, we're coming at is you have to, when you're, this doesn't mean stay on the medications. What it does mean is, is when you're working with people to reduce and come off these medications, it can be a, a much longer and slower process than people, people realize. Like I, I sometimes use the analogy of, you know, the, a 747 can't land on a little, little teeny airstrip in the middle of nowhere you know you, you need a, a yeah. big runway to do this in that yeah. way you can successfully land the plane yeah 
I agree. And That's when, a good analogy. You know, and, and one of the other goals is is yeah. as you sort of peel off these medications is to get those end those you know endogenous those our natural opioid systems working correctly again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And and you know, people need to think of the in, endogenous, the natural endogenous opioid system as a dynamic system, mm-hmm. you know, it's a system that's just not, it's not sitting there, um, humming along at the same exact level. It's actually dynamic. Mm-hmm. It should be changing. You know, the amount of different opiates that are uh, endogenous opiates, the kinds and where they're released in the brain should be in a constant state of change in the individual because we all experience different uh, environmental factors and and forces and uh, you know emotional contexts and you know bumps and scrapes etc. We 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 live in a dynamic environment and so the internal natural systems equally need to be in flux and and under dynamic regulation in response to the changing environment and so part of the issue is that these external you know the pharmaceutical opioids actually impair the endogenous system and its ability to be dynamically responsive to the external, you know, environment. Yeah. And so, so one way to illustrate that, um, I think is, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of also forget that chronic opiates actually can really destroy an, an, an individual's sleep architecture. Mm-hmm. And this happens all the time, and it's missed all the time by, you know, by practitioners. Um, and the, the way this happens is that, you know, you're prescribing, you know, we got to remember what narcotic, what narcosis means and narcotic, you know, the whole term meaning to sleep. Well, someone who's taking opiates, they're generally, you know, chronically, they're generally doing these drugs all day long during the day. And so they're taking a drug that is... Um, you know, causing the brain to acquire some uh, state conditions that are a lot like sleep. I mean, it is a central nervous system depressant. It does slow down rep- respiration, like what happens when you go to sleep. You know, it closes your eyes, etc. And so uh, by the time people really need to go to sleep at 11 or 12 at night, well, guess what? They have a hard time going to sleep because their brain has already been unnaturally sedated all day long. And then maybe at 4 a.m., they're starting to go into withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you wake up, right? So that's just another example of this overall principle that the, the other problem with chronic opiates is that be, they, they actually begin to dysregulate you know, internal natural control systems that have all kinds of implications for emotion and cognition. And good health, just period. And good health, you know, absolutely. You know, the, 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 then there's a, you know, there, there's, I want to come back to the dynamic part in just a second, but, you yeah. know, when you look at sleep and when we have disrupted sleep, really no matter what the reason you know, we know it happens with medications. It happens with, op- you know, chronic opioid therapy. We know it happens with other medications that are non-opioid medications. We know it happens with shift work. Yeah. And when you have disrupted sleep, I mean, if people appreciated just how important sleep was, I think we would all have like sleep calendars. Yeah. You know, because it's not just, you know, it affects how you think. It affects how you process information. It affects how you make decisions. It affects, um, you, you know, your cardiovascular system, your immune system. You know, whether you're going to have this low grade inflammation. I mean, it is, sleep is so important. And we, it just, it just, it just kills me that we, we forget about that. And we get into this, and particularly with pain, like, I don't, can't sleep because of my pain. Well, I understand that. But when we know we've been on opioids for a long period of time, the opioids are actually worsening the sleep, which in turn worsens the pain, which in turn causes, you know, progressive downward spiral. And again, not getting into all the details of what, what, what disturbed sleep affects basically every organ system in the body. Yeah. Um, the, the other part I want to clarify again was the dynamic. Cause you explained that so beautifully, but I, I, what I, I, you know, just for, for people who aren't quite familiar with dynamic means is, yeah, you know, 
our bodies are are amazing things, and so we know there's opioids throughout all these different systems, and they tend to put, you know, one area of the brain may use more of the natural opioids in your body at one particular time, and another area of your brain may use it in another particular time. But I, what, yeah. what you were basically saying is when we when we just flood it with all of these these exogenous these external opioids, not those there that that variability, the fine tuning that the brain uses. It doesn't happen anymore because we've just yeah. gummed up. We've just thrown it into the system. So, so areas that it may be appropriate for in that moment of time may get, you know, a little burst of opioid. But there are a bunch of other areas in the brain when it's inappropriate, and we're affecting them too. Yes. So, you know that that's what, you know people don't you know this stuff is not we don't have a pain center in the brain, and it's not like this stuff just magically goes through and and that you know the big problem with pharmaceuticals is they're not targeted <laughs> no doesn't no. not just opioids none of the pharmas uh, none of the pills are are targeted which is why we have side effects with all medications yes so yes. well said exactly you know I, I was just thinking as we're having this conversation about my dad a little bit and the reason for that is so my dad graduated from medical school he he uh in, in 1950 and he actually was originally uh, trained as a surgeon, but over the years, his practice became much more primary care and much more family medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, what I have in my house on my wall is actually a certification that he got in the late 1950s in the practice of hypnosis as a form of anesthesia. And he uh, was at, and there was a whole society actually dedicated to this. Um, the I, I I can't remember the name of the society exactly. Um, something like the Clinical Society of, or the Society for Clinical Hypnosis. Uh -huh. And he was actually quite proud of how good he was at doing this. And he would, you know, he used to tell me, and I saw him do it as a matter of fact. And he would tell me how he would actually use hypnosis, for example, to set broken arms without giving the, per, uh, the patient an opioid anesthetic or whatever while he was setting a broken arm. And I saw him do this mm -hmm. to, my, to my nephew, my sister's <laughs> son, uh, who got his arm broken and he... Um, you know, and, and it wasn't like he, you know, it wasn't like he swung a watch in front of my nephew's eyes and say, look at my watch. And then it was more that the, the technique was much more about the way he approached my nephew. My nephew was like nine years old at the time. He'd fallen down on railroad tracks and broken his arm. And it was more the way he approached my nephew, the way he talked with him, the way he held his arm and kind of distracted him and somewhat by surprise during that distraction set his arm in the field mm -hmm. and um you know it it it, it might have startled the little kid my nephew a little bit but it didn't didn't really hurt mm -hmm. you know didn't require an opioid and so i think um you know that's just kind of you know what you can get into questions about what is hypnosis exactly and you know, but I think the bottom line is that, you know, there, there are all kinds of conditions where um, we can we can get away with not using them um, and maybe some lost arts of, of medical care, um, you know, that we need to get back um, because we've kind of said we kind of put opioids on the pedestal of being uh, kind of the 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 normal thing to do, you know, yeah. in primary care uh, under such a wide variety of circumstances, you know. Well, yeah, and that, and that, that, you know, you said, well, the, an opioid wasn't required. Well, an exogenous opioid isn't required because I, we can almost guarantee that during that process that the natural internal opioids were working correctly in the brain. Totally, <laughs> you know? totally. That, that maybe there are things we can do that will facilitate the endogenous system. Could it be that, you know, what has been called hypnosis involves some degree of facilitation of the endogenous system? You know, um, could it be that, 
for example, some of the health benefits of exercise, you know, involve the endogenous opioid system that we believe protects us against, you know, dysphoric mental states and even in some ways makes us more tolerant to somatic pain. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, and it's, it's, it is fascinating because, um, you know, some people will say, oh, hypnosis, I tried that and it didn't work. Or, yeah. oh, oh, hypnosis, you're saying this is all in my head. And, and, and what I would say is, A, we know that hypnosis does have an effect. There's actually research on it. We know that, there's, there, we, that it changes brain activity. I would think it's much more encouraging to me, and maybe, maybe every gym doesn't think like this, but the more we can train and work with these, these, these natural internal systems, to facilitate and support and amplify them, you know, we're, again, if we're looking at this, this dynamic system in the brain and we, in, and we engage that dynamic system, it's, a, it's, a, it's working correctly. You know, the gears yeah. are firing as they're supposed to at the right rates in these different areas versus just blasting it with something else. And um, again, we're not saying you never, ever use medications. I don't think either one of us are saying that. I'm saying is the, no. the over-reliance on a medication and a and not recognition of both the complexity and the, and the amazingness of the human body, how resilient we are, it's not helping people in the long term. Yeah. Um, right. You know, I kind of find it interesting that your, your, you know, your father did that and was involved with hypnosis and there, there is still the American society of, uh, of clinical hypnosis. I just actually, oh, looked good. okay. Yeah. I didn't know if that, that society is still going and it's interesting to hear that it is. That's but, cool. But here, but my problem, and this is, this is probably beyond the scope of this particular talk yeah. though, is, um, you know, you can't patent that. Right. Right. And so we forget, you know, and we we don't I don't want to get into this in this particular talk, but we forget the marketing that is involved with keeping people um, to be quite honestly, honestly about this stuff. If I can make you dependent on me uh, and less dependent on yourself, that makes me a lot more money. Um, And there's there's you know, there's there's industries around that. I mean, I'm saying that, that pharma is completely horrible and awful, but it makes more sense from a business perspective to promote uh, either intentionally or unintentionally medications and things like that when, when, when they may not be the best option for yeah. a lot of different things. Again, long term. So Yeah, right. You know, I, I just had a couple thoughts um, to reflect uh, on that, if I could for a second. Yeah. One is, you know, my, my bristle. So, Here's another doctor in the family, but my brother, um, who is uh, an infectious disease physician uh, at UCSF, and, you know, I've heard him complain that, you know, to my surprise, you know, he does a lot, he's a researcher, and he works on developing new antibiotics, and I've heard him complain um, that, you know, the problem with research on antibiotics is they tend to be too effective to be profitable. <laughs> right? It doesn't surprise so, me. Yeah, it doesn't right? surprise me. They're so effective <laughs> that you can't keep people on them long yeah. enough. You don't need to keep people on them long enough so that companies have a hard time, you know, making them profit. So, so the, the other thing I was going to say is that, um, you know, th- this actually hits what you're pointing out there hits to the core of a historical battle within the field of psychiatry that I got to witness a little bit of the tail end of it and certainly heard a lot about it. And that was that, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, that was kind of when in the field of psychiatry, the power base began to shift away from psychoanalysis and psychodynamic psychiatry, that i.e. psychotherapy, and it shifted into pharmace- the pharmaceutical uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew a lot of faculty who kind of were, let me say, veterans of that war within my field, you know, on both sides, mm-hmm. right? And um, I, I, you know, what, what was interesting about that, battle was that the people who were trying to research new medications, they actually felt very oppressed 
by the psychoanalysts and the psychodynamic psychiatrists who, you know, really wanted to downplay medications and, and poo-poo those medications. And, you know, there was a feeling at that time that it was because they felt economically threatened by the potential that a medication could eradicate the need for psychotherapy. And then so, you know, that is really an interesting historical fact. And, and in many ways, this played out even in, in terms of controlling research dollars, mm -hmm. right? That there, you know, there used to be, it used to be that, um, believe it or not, that, you know, medication research and psychiatry was kind of stigmatized <laughs> because the power base was still so into, um, you know, individual psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, et cetera. And what I think is ironic now is I think that many of us would agree in the field that now the pendulum has swung far too, uh, far too far in the opposite direction, you know, to where we have so made uh, medications and the companies that make those medications so powerful in terms of insurance reimbursement um, and in terms of the standard of care that we've kind of lost what was actually really important and in terms of access to psychotherapeutic modalities and in terms of, you know, insurance companies reimbursing adequate care under those modalities, which is evidence-based, mm -hmm. you know, psychotherapy is absolutely evidence-based and it's biological. Um, but it's a real struggle, you know, to get, um, you know, insurance companies to pay for it. And that's a real shame um, because, you know, it's, it's, as you say, it's created a medical system where, you know, if a big company isn't going to benefit financially, then you just can't provide that treatment very well, you know, unless, unless a patient is able to, you know, pay out of pocket. But the truth is, you know, healing is still a lot, very much, it's not just about the, the diagnostic tests and the, and the, and the, medications or surgeries that go on, but it's, it's also about the relationship between patients and care teams, you know, the human element. Um, and, uh, that, that is something I think we have, um, we're, we're in deep trouble, uh, oh. in terms of our medical system of kind of forgetting. Oh yeah. No, I, 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 yeah. I would definitely concur on that. And, and, and yeah. you, cause you look at it over and over again, I mean, even in the pain world, when you start looking at data, um, passive based modalities, uh, you know, I, I call them done to you therapies yeah. when you're it's yeah. particularly when we're looking at persistent pain, uh, scenarios, if you're looking at people getting better, i.e. Yeah. using less healthcare resources, getting back to living and, and being involved with their families again, rather than being more and more in the healthcare system, um, funding for those is incredibly difficult to yeah. get. Yeah. And, you know, from a, from the psychiatrist uh, uh, perspective, I would love to hear, you know, how, how many psychiatrists in, in private practice or even in just in, in most healthcare systems uh, are, are able to spend time with their patients at all? I know, I mean, know some, I mean, there are some psychiatrists that actually don't want to, they just want to go in and, you know, spend the five minutes and write the medications, you know, but I don't think that, again, I don't think that's, that 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 psychopharmacology is not everybody in uh, psychiatry who would prefer to add that that uh, yeah. that human element again. Where we know how can you facilitate change in your client and such yeah. that they can empower themselves to really take control of these things uh, rather than have someone else take control of it for them. Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, I mean, th this is an issue that's really relevant right now in healthcare, um, especially in psychiatry. And, you know, I think that on the one hand, there is a, there is a wide diversity among psychiatrists about the extent to which they incorporate, you know, or even believe in, um, putting psychodynamic psychiatry into their medication management practices, you know, there, you know, there, there really is kind of a wide diversity of that. And, and just to say that off the bat and, um, you know, I think that, uh, unfortunately, again, this goes a little bit back to the history of psychiatry is that, you know, there, there are people who felt that, because we didn't understand psychodynamic psychiatry, we didn't understand psychoanalysis, really, 
there were a lot of people who felt that wasn't medical. You know, that's mm-hmm. that that doing that kind of care is not in the medical tradition. It's something else. It's not biological. It's not well proven. You know, this is no longer thought to be that way, but it was in the 60s and 70s and even some of the 80s. And so um, there were people who felt, you know, if we do psychotherapy as physicians, then we're not going to be identified as physicians, and therefore we're not going to have prestige and clout and belong to the house of medicine, and psychiatry will completely fall apart. So there were actually, ironically, people in psychiatry felt they had to turn away from it in order to maintain the legitimacy of psychiatry as a medical discipline. And I find that to be amazing, but that that's really true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't believe that. You know, I think that um, psychodynamic, aid, psychodynamic psychiatry is crucial to med management. I think it is biological. I think that it is evident. I know that it's evidence-based. Um and uh, but I, but I do think it is something that's actually uh, unique to what we do. Um, I mean, other doctors can do it too if they learn how to do it. But I think that that is something that is kind of still sort of um, part of what you're supposed to know a little bit about and know how to do a little bit as a psychiatrist. But with that said, um, you know, there still are some you know residency training programs that don't necessarily agree with that, and I. You know, and I also know uh, most detrimentally that our economic and our medical system from and, and the business of American medicine is such that you are pressured to not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you are pressured to know to not know your patient, to not have a relationship with them uh, because it doesn't benefit a company. You know, it, it, it doesn't it, it, it decrease from from a corporate perspective, from a profit margin perspective, whether you're talking about the drug company, the insurance company or even the hospital system, having a relationship and a psychodynamic stance with your patient is a inefficiency in terms of their profit margins. And so that pre- that creates a pressure you know, on psychiatrists, but also primary care doctors mm-hmm. um, to, to not talk to or spend time with your patient because you're cutting into seeing more patients and delivering more commodities that deliver profits. You see? Oh, yeah, the, the, the system is incentivized to view people as widgets. And so the yeah. goal is how do we shove as many widgets through as fast as possible? Yes. Yeah, and... Uh, at least, and I would say at least more on the um, in in more of the cognitive realms, right? The other ones is how yeah. many widgets can we can we push through so that we can, you know, put the medical device in or do the surgery on and you know get the long stays with that. But uh, yeah. you know, I, I have a friend actually. She's out near you who um, from medical school, and and uh, you know, it, it's just amazing. She did a, I can't remember what she did exactly. She did some advanced training in either business or healthcare or economics or whatever. Yeah. And one of her professors had a, uh, had a saying, and I loved it is you, you get what you incentivize. And, yeah. you know, we like yeah. to complain and everybody's complaining about it, but we, we have the healthcare system that we've incentivized, not necessarily, you know, you know, our go- the way the government did it, whether our, you know, uh, who, who, you know, who, how this, how it was constructed, our, our healthcare system is exactly the healthcare system that we're going to have because this is what the incentives support. And until yeah. those incentives change, it's not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It isn't. Yeah. Which I think, which I think kind of in, uh, you know, we're, we're over the hour mark here. So let's kind of, kind of wrap this up a little bit. But I think yeah. this brings us to the point is what we've been talking this entire time is, um, you know, we, we sort of led off in this understanding of addiction. Understanding that addiction is more complex than, than and should be much more appreciated. We should have a lot more empathy toward toward addiction than I think, you know, if you hear the word, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be jumping all over the place saying, you know, not even being able to have rational conversation anymore. Because my, my suspicion is if we poked in any one of us, we would find aspects of addiction because it, in anything that we did. You know, yeah. and we may express it in uh, different degrees, but all of us have have a component to it because part of addiction, you know, again, is it is involved with these 
with, with part of being human, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, but what we've been talking about really is, is, is understanding that and then recognizing that these, these endogenous systems, our natural inherent way that the brain and body works, we should be f- supporting that rather than inhibiting it. Um, yeah. and, if, and if you're doing that, no matter who you are out there, that's, you know, that if you want to not get in, trapped in the healthcare system, ultimately that's what it comes down to. Who can you work with? How can you, you know, what can you do? What can you learn? What skill set can you have to support your own body's resiliency and internal processes so that you, you know, can live long and healthier lives? Or at least that's, that's sort of the impression I've got from this conversation. But, yeah. You know. Absolutely. And, and, you know, maybe even, you know, as we hopefully improve our healthcare system to better address addictive disease, you know, rather than the even more expensive medical consequences, um, we also will arrive at a healthcare system that much more strategically deploys you know, surgeries and advanced medicines, um, more, more, you know, in, 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 in cases where it it absolutely is needed. In other words, that a better, um, a, a better use of medical resources where it makes a difference and, and a curtailing of, you know, over, overuse of medical resources where it's not needed, but yet putting it where it is needed more, more effectively. Um, you know, cause that, that's, that's how we, I I think that's how we have to see our, our current healthcare crisis, right? I mean, when we have worse outcomes than other Western developed countries and we spend double the amount of money, then obviously the resources are not going, you know, there, there's an overabundance of resources that are not going to where the problems actually are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that is uh, a story not you know not only that maps to the opioid epidemic and addiction, but also to the whole our whole healthcare system. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting when you start you know teasing out this. You know, we, we can talk about pain. We can talk about addiction. We can talk about basically any sort of condition that is being treated, and ultimately comes back to this. The, <laughs> the system is just it's just broken <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> unbelievable but it's, yeah oh well you know thank you very very much for coming on and talking today um really appreciate it i will definitely we have to have another discussion i always enjoy our talks there uh yeah absolutely so and then and we didn't we didn't even hit on i think we, we had in, originally intended talking about other things like and uh we didn't even get there so we definitely have to come back and do another episode on maybe i could be a regular reg uh, you know a a periodically occurring guest oh yeah yeah no we, 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 you can yeah that would right. be great that'd i be enjoyed great. it all right well thank you all or thank you very much for for coming on today and for everybody else out there stay well